My name is Eva, and I just watched House of the Dragon, Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides. What an hour of brilliant acting and a superb choice of directing aimed at showing, not telling, and thereby managing to recount a tragic, powerful, and ultimately heartbreaking story of fury, fate, and fallacy. From the onset, I just have to say a spoiler alert is in effect. This is a spoiler review of episode 8. And where it is relevant, I will also compare the episode to what happened in the books. But I won't reveal anything about the future. And in all honesty, the series has diverged sufficiently to keep book readers as curious as non-book readers. This week we learned that Corlys Velaryon, Lord of Driftmark, also known as Lord of the Tides, has been absent from Driftmark for six years fighting in the Stepstones. His wife, Renice, has been sitting on the Driftwood throne all this time, loyally abiding by her husband's wishes. Yet now word reaches them that Corlys is injured possibly fatally, which causes his younger brother Vaymond, not to be confused with Daemond, to leave Driftmark for King's Landing, to petition for the right to be recognised as heir to Driftmark, which is completely against Corlys's wishes, who, as you might remember, named Luke Targaryen, Rhaenyra's youngest son, as his heir. Off to King's Landing is Rhaenyra and Daemon as well when they receive the news, for they too will petition the crown to uphold Corlys's wishes. Everyone around them thinks it is a bygone conclusion that the decision will be made against them, for King Viserys is bedridden, his body half-eaten. Well, Actually, a lot more than half of his body is eaten with disease, while his mind is addled with milk of the puppy. Rhaenyra will be forced to make her petition before Alicent, the queen, and Alicent's father, Otto Hightower, who is now once again Hand of the King. Otto has already made a pact with Vaymond Valarion who claims that he is the rightful heir since true Valerian blood courses through his veins, as opposed to Rhaenyra's sons, who are, well, whose blood is probably more strong than Valerian. So this is the underlying story for this episode. But as we know with House of the Dragon, things are never straightforward. Despite all odds, King Viserys heeds the appeal of his daughter, and holding on to life by sheer force of stubbornness, he crawls out of bed, toddles, limps, and struggles through the length of the great hall in the Red Keep to finally, and one final time, sit on the Iron Throne and utter his judgment in favour of Rhaenyra's son and his rightful claim to Driftmark. And he also, once again, pronounces Rhaenyra as his rightful heir to the Iron Throne. Now this is huge, because if Luke had been cast aside as the heir to Driftmark, 
that would have sent a message all through Westeros that he was indeed illegitimate. And if he were illegitimate, it would make Rhaenyra unfit for the Iron Throne. So it is pivotal that Viserys says these words. But as we have been primed to know, a ruling from the Iron Throne will always give rise to tension. And as Vaymond Valerian's anger gets the better of him, he hurls the forbidden words, the words forbidden by Viserys himself, and following a tongue-cutting threat from Viserys, Daemon, who is a little more impatient than Viserys, cuts off Vaymond Valerian's head. Well, he cuts off enough of Valerian's head for him to drop down very dead. King Viserys, haggard with only one eye remaining, invites his exceedingly dysfunctional family to one last supper. And toasts are given, speeches are made, but the tension is far sharper than any butcher's knife. And as Viserys retires to bed, in that warm glowing hope that his family is finally reconciled, the resentment and ill will that the children have inherited from their elders bursts into a fight. Viserys, blissfully unaware of this, is on his last night in this world, and with his last breath, he mumbles the secret of the Song of Ice and Fire to the woman standing beside him, convinced that it is his daughter, Rhaenyra. And he talks about the prophecy of Aegon, a secret which is whispered only from ruler to heir. But the woman standing beside him is not Rhaenyra. It is Alicent, and she mistakes the mention of Aegon the Conqueror to be her own son, Aegon, and concludes that Viserys has changed his mind about succession, naming his own son Aegon as heir to the Iron Throne. The episode ends as Viserys finally throws off his mortal coil, and this is such a powerful, moving scene, and so endlessly tragic, that this man dies alone. This was one hour without battles, yet so much action was conveyed by looks, by word delivery, and by camera work. I want to highlight four spectacular moments that I thought were noteworthy, and later on I will delve into other speculations. In no particular order, the first moment I thought was noteworthy was seeing the magnificent driftwood throne in full daylight splendor. The thrones in the Song of Ice and Fire world are unique in being vested with historical, magical, or natural power rather than coated in gold and fleeting luxury as you often see it in historical dramas or in high fantasy. The Driftwood Throne is, according to the books, given to the Velaryons by the god, the Merlin King, a god who protects the narrow sea between Westeros and Essos. My number two noteworthy moment is Rhaenyra's arrival at the Red Keep. Apart from the very obvious snub of not being greeted by, the very least, the commander of the King's Guard or even Alicent, it is worth noticing that the men miling around are the men of arms of Hightower, not the King's Guard. 
and it is also the men of Hightower who escort Vaymond Valarian to the Red Keep, again not the Kingsguard. Rhaenyra is greeted by one man and one man only, Lord Caswell, the very same who was the first to congratulate her as she stumbled out of her birthing bed with her newborn babe in her arms on her way to Alicent. The fact that we see Lord Caswell so prominently here tells me two things. One, that he is loyal to Rhaenyra, and two, that his life may be in risk following the events of this episode. For it seems that Rhaenyra's supporters are few and far between, and this leads to the theme of this episode, alone amongst others. Renice Valarion touches upon this as she talks with Rhaenyra, remarking to Rhaenyra that the high towers will bring you to your knees and I will stand alone. It is quite telling that Renice's voice is only heard. She is only invited into the fold when an ailing king, who too is alone amongst others, demands to hear her say in the matter. It is a consequence of power in Westeros that it will make you a stranger to your former friends and distance you from others. All the way back in Episode 1, Season 1 of Game of Thrones, Robert Baratheon, who had gained the throne, had been physically distanced from his very own friend Ned Stark, who might otherwise have let him down a happier path and a better rule. From the future of Robert Baratheon to now Viserys, whose longing for a male heir caused the loss of his true love and a life distanced from his daughter and his brother. Alicent, too, is alone amongst others. The sea of bitter memories separates her from a former best friend and very ambiguous emotions separate her from her father. My number three moment of this episode is, of course, the moment, Viserys's heart-wrenching walk to the throne. Viserys had, in an earlier episode, wistfully, or perhaps regretfully, asked the one honest man at court, the late Lionel Strong, if he might have risen to the occasion if he had been truly challenged and thereby showed himself as a true king. In that instance, he meant battle, of course, but in this instance, Viserys heeds the battle call of his daughter and does rise to that challenge, because as physically frail as he looks, the balance of power changes dramatically as he enters the Great Hall. He might have broken our hearts with that long walk, but it was a king who entered his own throne room. Viserys has been the only thing holding back the deluge of civil war. So in a way, he has and was a lord of the tides. He entered that great hall with the very last powers in him, and he exuded that power. And most people recognized that and read the room. Well, except Vaymond Valarion, who still spoke to that weakling that Viserys had been for so long. Eve Best, the actor who plays Renice, did some excellent face work acting in this scene. But the moment 
and I would wager the episode belonged absolutely to Paddy Considine. His look as he realizes that it is his brother, Damon, who has come to help him the last few steps up to the Iron Throne is remarkable. And Paddy Considine and Matt Smith have done such concise, non-verbal work to portray the brotherly love that has never wavered despite all the chaos that they have thrown at each other. Yes, I cried and I applauded the director for not cutting the scene and letting us immerse ourselves in that labor of that long walk and through it remember all that has gone before. In a way, this series has been the story of Viserys until now. This was Gold Star Directing. My fourth and final moment that I want to highlight is Damon himself. It is a credit to the multi-layered characters of George R. R. Martin's work that a man whose behavior towards young Rhaenyra came as close to grooming as it could possibly come, and who not so long ago actually killed his first wife, is now trending on Twitter as a hero for slaying a man who insulted his brother. There is, of course, a comparison to be made with Jamie Lannister and his redemption arc. But I would also draw attention to the character of Valmont from the 18th century novel Dangerous Liaisons, a character who has the same vicious streak as Damon, but who also ends in a hero-like situation. You may know this character from the 1989 film adaptation starring John Malkovich as Valmont and Michelle Pfeiffer and Glenn Close in other parts. George R. R. Martin's absolute strength is his insistence on maintaining the complexity of the human experience in his portrayals of the characters. The characters are difficult, they contradict themselves, they are passionate and they are cold all at the same time. I really laud the directors of House of the Dragon for not viewing this as too complicated and therefore in need of simplifying. But they too, it seems, have insisted on showing how these particular characters in this particular context make their particular decisions. And this leads to the second theme of this episode, forces coming to the fore. In this episode, the emotional driving forces of each of the main characters are laid out, not through exposition, but through their interactions with others, so that we, the viewers, just before the penultimate episode, know exactly where they are coming from and what their decisions might lead them to. What is interesting about the driving forces of the characters is that they usually have two but are misunderstood in one of them. Damon's driving force is and has always been the need to be needed, a need to be important to his elder brother. Yet Viserys does not seem to see this clearly. And when he, for example, sent assistance to Damon in the Battle of the Stepstones, that scene where Damon beat up the messenger, Viserys was in essence telling Damon that Damon needed Viserys, not the other way round, which is why Damon turned him down. 
But when Rhaenyra proposed to Damon, she said the words, I need you. That is the way to get Damon to do what you want, because that is what Damon needed to hear. Damon's other force is ruthlessness. And this sometimes makes him stand in opposition to his brother, who has tried all his life to maintain peace. And that was Viserys's driving force to keep the peace as his predecessor, the good King Jaehaerys, had done. Now that made him look weak in the eyes of Westeros, and arguably also in the eyes of many viewers too, for it was conflict that broke out in his lifetime, not peace. Viserys's other driving force is loyalty to those he loves, which causes him to name Rhaenyra as his heir following the death of Emma. Yet he can't find a way to be loyal and yet not be blind. And symbolically, at the dinner, his one remaining eye is facing Rhaenyra, but he is as willfully unseeing with that eye as the eye he has lost that faces Alicent. Rhaenyra's circumstances have forced her to open her eyes in order to survive the cutthroat politics of King's Landing. In her youth, she wished to be valued by her father, and if that meant insisting on being his heir, then that was the route she was willing to take, even if that bound her to the duties of the throne. It was her, after all, who said, I am the crown. When she realized that she was no longer just Rhaenyra, the girl who wanted to be valued, but who also wanted independence, a driving force with Rhaenyra that those around her find quite difficult to grasp. I do find it quite amusing, though, that the same girl who spoke quite forcefully against motherhood and marriage is now the one sprouting marriage proposals here, there, and everywhere in the last few episodes. Alicent was brought up to marry, but ended up being married not only to Viserys, but to her father's ambitions. I know that some reviewers have called Alicent as cruel and as calculating as Cersei Lannister, but I would challenge that, for Alicent's driving force, in my opinion, is a need to be perceived as kind, dutiful, and not least righteous. And if you were to stand before Cersei Lannister and compliment her by saying, Oh, Cersei, you're just so kind and dutiful, Cersei Lannister would look at you as if you were demented, because she did not care whether other people thought her kind and dutiful. She cared whether you were her enemy, whether you stood in her way, or whether you threatened her children. Alicent's self-image is based on her being dutiful and honourable, and she justifies her actions through that self-image. And that sheer labour of keeping up this balance does not allow her to forgive the trespasses of others. It is why she must have an eye for an eye, and it is only when Rhaenyra, in the dinner speech, acknowledges the effort and the duty Alicent has put in that she thaws a little bit. But honestly, that dinner, those speeches, 
come around 20 years too late. Or even one day too early, for when Alicent hears the last words of Viserys as he reveals the secret of the prince that was promised, she has a real need to believe that he is speaking directly to her, despite being so obviously delirious. This is because he delivers the words that can make her future decisions based on duty instead of petty resentment towards Rhaenyra. It gives her motivation for the civil war that is coming. But if I have just a tiny little nitpick, I would say, and this is not about the context, but the execution of it, Alicent seems to be the queen of misunderstandings, for she has already been in a situation of misunderstanding when Kristen Cole inadvertently told her the truth about his night with Rhaenyra, and now the same plot device is reused with the same person. It's not that it was jarring, but it was enough for me to be aware of it that the same plot device was being used concerning the same person. The last person I want to briefly talk about is Aemond Targaryen. I do think that he is a small victim of the time jumps. The actor portraying him is doing a magnificent job, but he does look considerably older than his elder brother. And it is a consequence of time jumps that they entail a certain amount of selection. Some things are altered and others are not. And it just becomes very apparent when you then gather people together who are all supposed to have aged decades. Amond has aged. Kristen Cole has absolutely not. And nor has Damon. So it does look a little bit peculiar, but it is only a little quip. What I do want to touch upon are the growing similarities between Amond and Damon. While Damon needs to be needed, Amond is on the farthest end of that continuum, for he has made sure that not only is he needed, but he is useful by being the rider of the fiercest dragon, by being a formidable fighter, and by being cunning. When Damon sliced the head off Vaymond, everyone looked shocked. Everyone except Amond, who looked as if he had, hmm, just got a brand new idea. And that face-to-face -face of Aemond and Damon at the dinner, that must surely be foreshadowing some pivotal scenes between these two in the future. It is evident, I think, that I am really enjoying House of the Dragon. The meticulous portrayal of political machinations, the organic, understandable, if not acceptable, motivations for characters, but not least the dialogue, which in my opinion is far superior to any on any other popular TV series at the moment. Lastly, a listener wrote to me and thank you so much for doing so and asked me to give a rundown of the names of people and their connections. And they really are complicated. So starting with Rhaenyra, daughter of Viserys, she has two sons who were, how should I put this, born while she was married to Lena Valerian, but who are the sons of the late, great Harwin Strong? <laughs> I really liked Harwin. Anyway, with Damon, 
her uncle. She has two sons, Viserys and Aegon, and another in the, on the way. And in the book, Alicent is furious that Rhaenyra names one of her sons Aegon. Alicent takes this as an insult. Alicent herself, daughter of Otto, has two sons in the TV series, Aegon and Aemond. But in the book, she does have one innocent, lovely boy named Darian. She's also the mother of Helena, who it seems is being set up as a seer or a prophet of some sort, though this is not explored in the books. Helena is married, in true Targaryen fashion, to her brother Aegon, and they have two children. It is worth noting that this is a brother and sister marriage in, as I said, Targaryen fashion, but their mother, Alicent, has veered towards the religion of the seven who do not condone this type of marriage. Daemon Targaryen has two daughters with his late wife, Lena, and those two daughters are Bela and Reyna. And um, though there was only one interaction between him and Bela in the form of a letter, and she interestingly stood beside House Velaryon at the petition, there was a deleted scene from last episode that actually did show that Damon loves his daughters, and this is better explored in the books. Bela and Reyna are now betrothed to their cousins, the sons of Damon and Rhaenyra, whose names are Jaceris, who's in line for the Iron Throne after Rhaenyra, and Luceris, called Luke, the heir confirmed to Driftmark. Why? Can't wait for the next episode that, interestingly enough, is called The Green Council. How will Rhaenyra discover the death of her father if she actually had already left King's Landing and the Red Keep? How will Team Green, with Alicent and Hightower, respond to the death of Viserys? And how will Team Black and Team Green? justify their first actions in the civil war that is thundering ever closer. Well, we'll have to wait and find out. Until then, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.